Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I am speaking with Dr. Jacqueline Schildekraut about her research on mass shootings. Uh, this is a long overdue interview with Dr. Schildekraut. Uh, we've we've scheduled this and scheduled this, and uh, for a variety of reasons, um, had to put it off for a while. Uh, but here we are. Um, I also want to say that the show just passed 5,000 downloads, um, and so uh, thank you, thank you, thank you um, to all of you um, for keeping the show going, um, for all of your support. Thank you to all of our guests um, for giving me uh, a little bit of time out of your very busy schedules um, to learn more about you and your work. Um, so that said, uh, this is episode... 64 of Untenured Tracks. about is um, my lockdown drills research. Uh, for the last about two years, I've been working with a local school district here in New York, um, collecting data on lockdown drills and the impact of these drills on the people that participate in them, and also like what the introduction of training does to that. Um, you know, does it make people more effective at locking down? Um, does it change perceptions or shift, you know, I, uh, mentality about it? So that's really what I've been working on the last um, two years. And right now, of course, with it being COVID and a pandemic, we're having to kind of flip that a little bit on its head to not only be like, what do drills look like, but what do drills look like in a pandemic? Mm -hmm. So can you expand on that a little bit? So like, what do drills look like in a pandemic? Um, so we're just getting kind of into that um, in because there's really, I mean, there's very little guidance and best practices on drills in general. Um, and now we're dealing with a pandemic on top of that. So where we're kind of planning it out with the school district is um, because the schools are already split into groups or they're calling them pods, mm -hmm. um, where half of the kids come Monday and Tuesday and half of the kids come Thursday and Friday, then the class sizes are much smaller. So they'll be broken up into even smaller groups like group A, B, C, and D. And each of those groups will correspond to a drill. So like group A is drill one, group B is drill two. And so what will happen is on whatever number drill it is, that group will participate in it um, by moving to their safe location in the corner, um, getting down, remaining out of sight, while the remainder of the class remains in their desk um, because we want to be able to have the space to socially distance mm -hmm. while they're doing that. Um, so that's kind of sort of where we're going with it at the present time. Um, we're, we're hopeful to get into the school district in the spring to mm -hmm. be able to kind of implement it and see what it looks like. Okay. It's, yeah, I mean, it's telling like the sad state of stuff that we're practicing lockdowns, but also having, having to maintain social distancing is, uh, pretty sad. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't know how other states are doing it. I honestly haven't really looked into it, but here in New York, 
our state normally requires that schools conduct four lockdown drills every year. Mm-hmm. And despite the pandemic, they haven't changed that requirement um, sort of on its face. But inevitably it changed because now that you have two different groups of students or these different pods, they both have to go through it. So mm-hmm. now you're effectively doubling the number of drills that you have to conduct or actually at the high school level, it's quadrupling because they're in four different groups. Mm-hmm. So um, it's certainly a, a heavier lift. But, you know, as I've constantly promoted, you know, it's really important that we're keeping this conversation going because violence in schools or emergencies don't care whether there's a pandemic going on or not. They actually just kind of care if there's somebody in the building. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so making sure that we're continuing to build that muscle memory to develop the skills, to practice those skills, it's really important. We're just having to be a little bit more mindful of how we engage in that practice. Um, But then also, you know, keeping in mind that the reality is, is that if, an emergency happens where we have to do this for real COVID-19 goes out the window because at that point it's like a life-saving mission. For sure. How long does a typical lockdown drill take? Um, it usually takes, it depends on the size of the school and how big the team is um, in terms of, cause you're checking all of the rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we've conducted our drills, um, not including ones where we've collected like actual like uh, anxiety data at the end of them, um, depending on the size of the school, it usually takes us anywhere between 7 and 17 minutes. Um, the 17 minutes is more of the high schools because they're so massive um, and they're so spread out that even with four or five you know, individual teams running through the school, it just takes that long because mm-hmm. they're so big. Um, whereas the elementary schools are usually much smaller and easier to get through pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, on average, it takes us about 17 to 17 minutes to clear a school. Okay. I mean, I, I just asked because I was I was curious about, like, how do the drills uh, affect other parts of the school day? Like, thinking of it from, like, a social education perspective, I guess. Like, how how are teachers, and especially now in places where they have to, like, double the number of drills. I mean, it's not that much time, but I, I guess if I was teaching, I would complain, <laughs> right? Especially if I'm, a, if I'm in a merit-based situation, right? And I don't know how New York does it. Um but like if my if my salary is tied to SAT scores and I feel like I have to teach the test <laughs> or if I'm going to stay employed and now I'm losing half an hour of instruction time um, because I've doubled the lockdown drills. I, I could see somebody being mad about that. But. You know, I'm sure that there's probably I mean, there's always going to be pushback mm-hmm. to drills, whether it's the time component, whether it's the anxiety component. Um, there's always pushback to them, mm-hmm. but I think it also depends on how you're conducting it um, in terms of what that time looks like. Because, you know, when we come in, and I and I should clarify as well that when I say 7 to 17 minutes, that also includes a debrief. Okay. So we're not just basically like running through the school being like, you're good, and then knocking off. You know, we go through, we check all the rooms, um, which is multiple steps that you're checking each room. So you want to check and make sure that the door is locked, that the lights are off, that the occupants are out of sight, meaning you cannot see them or hear them from the hallway. You knock on the door, which is a simulation of somebody trying to get in without, like, you know, sitting down the floor. Um, And the reason we do that is also, like, when we first started the project, before they had any training, we had everything under the sun happened when we would knock on the door. So we would have teachers come up and open the door and talk to us or let kids come up to the door and talk to us. Um, my personal favorite was when they would come up to the door and yell through the door to me that they couldn't talk to me because they were in a lockdown. And I'm like, but I can see you. 
Um, you know, so we really wanted to kind of, you know, squash that behavior because in an actual emergency, if you have an active attacker in your school, your door is a point of vulnerability. And so we really want to keep people away from the door. Um, so we do check that. And then what we do is we open the door, we unlock the door, which as we taught them in training, whoever needs to come into your room, they have a key. So we let ourselves in, which is just what law enforcement would do. Um, we identify ourselves, you know, we say, Hey, your room has been checked. Great job. Please remain in lockdown until you hear the all clear. And we close the door and we move on to the next room. And so we'll do this, um, in this school district, we usually will check upwards of about 2000 rooms in 30 buildings, not all in one day, thankfully. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, that, that just gives you some perspective of how much we're really like going through. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you get through clearing all the rooms, we'll actually radio back to the principal and ask them to begin the debrief script. And so what that does is over the loudspeaker, the principal or somebody in an authoritative capacity will come on and say, you know, what you just participated in was a lockdown drill. Here's why we did it. We want to ensure that we're helping to stay safe. Um, And then we give them a two-minute period uh, where they can discuss within their spaces what they think they did well, questions that they have, those kinds of things that they can then pose back to us. And then after several minutes, we clear the drill. Mm -hmm. So our time to actually clear the building is a little bit faster than that, 7 to 17 minutes. But we also want to give that sort of deflation debrief period so that everybody, when the drill is finally called and the all clear is given, that they can go back within their normal space, get back to whatever it is that they were doing. Because if we were coming in very differently, you know, like for lack of a better phrase, if we were coming in hot, um, not that we're not, but I mean, when I say hot, I'm talking about crisis actors with fake blood, simunition, um, you know, police with pellet guns and all of this other stuff. If we were coming in like that, your drill would take a lot longer because you'd literally be dealing with trauma at the end of it. We're working in accordance with best practices from NASRO, the National Association of School Resource Officers, um, the National Association of School Psychologists, or NAS, and then also FEMA in terms of what drills should look like in order to be able to mitigate the trauma that these drills are potentially causing. Yeah, so that was going to be my next question. So what what do these drills do to kids? Um, it, it's so variable. Um, you know, it really is going to come down to a lot of different factors. Um, I think the primary factor is, of course, how the drill is conducted. You can conduct it like a Hollywood movie, um, or you can conduct it in accordance with best practices. Um, having been... Hollywood doesn't have best practices? I'm shocked. No. Um, so interestingly enough, I think it was last year. It might have been the year before, but I'm pretty sure it was last year. Um, our local sheriff's office um, had created a program where they offered rescue task force training to all of the agencies within the county. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because the reality is, is that if you have an emergency, everybody in a 50 mile radius is going to show up. Like you're going to have so many different you know, agencies within, you know, that because everybody wants to come and help. And so one of the things that we've historically seen from Columbine until Parkland is that when you have all of these different agencies show up in mass and they've never worked together, there's issues of incident command. There's issues of communication. There's just all sorts of problems, fire, EMS, and police don't even use the same codes. Mm -hmm. So by having these rescue task force trainings, um, it really allows them to practice their response together um, to be a bit more coordinated. So our sheriff's office had made an arrangement with one of our local schools. Um, It was over the summer, so nobody was there. 
Um, and they basically turned it into a school shooting. Um, there was blood everywhere. There were crisis actors. There was a shooter with a cap gun. Um, and having been through that and personally not even making it all the way through it um, before I had to get pulled out of the building, um, I can definitely with a thousand million percent certainty say that school children should never be exposed to this. Um, I personally probably should have never been exposed to it just because of my own background. Um, but, you know, it's not something that kids need. The reality is, is that the reason we do drills is to build muscle memory Mm -hmm. such that if there's ever something in the building where a gun is going off or there's other types of emergency and your mind just goes blank because of your cognitive functioning is impaired from stress, your body is going to do what it is trained to do. So when we do drills, we're just trying to train your body. Go in the corner, get down, be quiet. That's all we want you to do. Law enforcement is going to t- come take care of everything else. You have a very small window. It's going to seem like the longest five minutes of your life probably, but you have a very small window in which you just need to stay out of the way. And, you know, I won't say stay calm because nobody can stay calm in that situation, but to stay out of the way, to do what you're trained to do, and to trust that your first responders are going to show up. And, you know, from what we know about the way that these events unfold, it's really important that they're doing this, you know, and of course that the first step is locks because we know that door locks are a proven time barrier in an active shooter situation. No one has been killed behind a door lock because the door lock failed. So we really want to build that time barrier and then get out of the way. Nobody needs to be a hero. Just get down, get quiet. And as I tell kids, when I train them, if the shooter doesn't know where you are, i.e. they cannot hear you or see you, they cannot hurt you. So this is why we need you to do this part and not this other thing. Like, don't run out of the building into harm's way. Mm-hmm. Stay down. Yeah. And, like, these conversations are so interesting because, like, for me personally, it's it's touching on, like, three different points of my life, right? So um, as a criminology professor, like, academically, intellectually, I understand this. <laughs> Having had these conversations in my classes, as I'm sure you and lots of other people listening to this podcast have had, um, like I, I hate those conversations. I just hate those days, right? Like I can remember the year, it was the year that Parkland happened, actually. And it may have been, it may have been a conversation we had in response to that. I was teaching juvenile delinquency in a classroom that used to be the university's art gallery. <laughs> and so there, uh, there were two like floor to ceiling windows and one wall was just all floor to ceiling um, glass. And like people would walk by while I was teaching and it was like, we were on display. Um, And it was a, it was a big room and the students were like, if anything happens while we're in this class, like we're, we're screwed. Um, and, And so, and then it falls on me, right. To come up with like ways to kind of mitigate that, that anxiety. And so fortunately in that classroom, there was this big, um, like movable wall that they hadn't taken out from when the art gallery was in there. Um, and I was like, listen, like if something happens, we have the, we have the movable wall. And like that, that wall had been a joke up until that point. I was like, if something happens, like we can, me and there are a couple of football players in the class. I was like, we can, we can move the wall into the corner and we all go and hide behind the wall and just stay quiet. Right. And then we're fine. Um, but I've, I've had other incidents too, right. Where, Students are like, like if something happens, we're when we're in this room, we're in trouble. 
Like, well, my office is down the hall. My office has no windows facing the hallway. My office is a, a very thick um, door. We would, you know, clown car <laughs> into my office and 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 just try to stay quiet. And and I hate having I hate having to have those conversations, right? But then, as a parent <laughs> with uh, two small children, um, one of whom has gone through lockdown drills at her at elementary school. Um, where they told the kindergarten class, they didn't tell them what was going on. Just like, we're gonna, we're just playing a game. And like, that was one of the scariest days I think of my life was just like knowing that my daughter was going through that. And so I I don't know, like I, (laughs) I, like I said, intellectually, like I totally appreciate and I understand this as, as a human being, it just makes me so mad that we have to have these conversations, you know? Well, and I think that that touches upon kind of two pretty significant points. Um, The first of which is that the conversations that you're having with your students in those moments, because I've had them as well, um, are conversations that we should just normally be mindful of, and that's situational awareness. Like, I was never a police officer, but I've spent enough time around police officers to know that when I go to a restaurant, I don't sit with with my, my back to the door. Like, I need to always have you know, visual on point of entry Mm -hmm. because you don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, certainly I don't, I don't live in fear. I just say, you know, like when my best friend and I used to go out to dinner, she knew her back went to the door. My back did not (laughs) go to the door that I was going to watch the door. And Mm -hmm. that was how it was going to be. And if anything happened, I'd yell, get down. Um, But, you know, you sort of just build up these habits over time. I've had those conversations actually on the one month anniversary of Parkland I was, or the one year anniversary of Parkland, which that's where I'm from. So it's just a whole nother, you know, level of crazy chaos in my head about the whole thing. Um, I actually went, I was teaching my intro to criminal justice class that day. And this room that I was in, it's a giant lecture hall. It seats 450 people. I've got eight sets of double doors that all open outwards. So they can't be barricaded. I of course don't have a key to any of these doors. Um, and I've got 200 kids in a room with the desks bolted to the floor. So my situational awareness is always going because if someone ever were to come into that room, God forbid, I can't do anything except bolt out the door that's behind me, which I'd love to think that I won't, that I'd actually, you know, try and be like somebody like Chris Hickson or Aaron Feist and actually save my students. I don't know if I would be able to, but I certainly would try. Um, or I'd like to think that I would try, you know, again, flight or fight is a, is a very interesting mm-hmm. thing, but we had a conversation that day, um, because I was obviously for personal reasons, extremely emotional. And I said, listen, I can't, I was honest with them. I said, I can't lecture to you guys today. This just, this is Valentine's day and Wednesday to you, to me, this is the day that like my entire life changed. And so I said, you know, I will have a very frank, open conversation with you. There were ground rules. I didn't want to hear the name of the shooter because I have a very visceral reaction to it. Um, And we talked about, um, you know, a lot of different things. And, you know, the thing is, it's interesting. They think about it. But also the reality is, is that younger kids think about it, too. And so, you know, when we look at kids like yours um, or the kids that I've worked with over the last two years, they're part of what's called the Columbine generation. They've never known a world without active shooter drills or lockdown drills in it. And what I've found really interesting in doing this work is the dichotomy between how kids talk about it 
and how adults talk about it. So if you talk to a kid about a lockdown drill, um, again, a lockdown drill that's conducted in accordance with best practices, not, you know, not a rodeo. Um, kids are, kids talk about it very matter of factly. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, they're like, well, I got up today and, you know, I had some cereal and I put on my shoes and I rode the bus to school and I had a math test. I went to gym. I had a lockdown drill. I ate lunch. Then we had some recess. Like to them, it's just something that they do. The mindset of where we're having to have a very different conversation is with the adults in the room, like me and you, who mm-hmm. graduated at or before Columbine, who never had to go through a drill yeah. the day in our lives. You know, I graduated high school. I mean, my birthday's on Friday, so I'll date myself here. Um, the year before Columbine happened, and until I started running drills in 2018, I'd never been through an active shooter drill or a lockdown drill a day in my life. Um, and I still have not been on the receiving end. I've only been on the giving end. So, you know, the mindset, and I've had to deal with this with administrators who have gotten really freaked out. And they'll like come running into the office when I'm debriefing with the principal about like what we saw and everything. And um, I had one who like completely lost her mind. And, you know, she was very upset, very agitated. And she's like, you just scared the hell out of these kids. And I'm like, okay, let's talk about this. How did I do that? Will you open the door? And I said, okay, time out. Let's go back to training. Because you had training and you revisited training. What were you taught in training? I don't know. Okay, well, clearly we need to revisit what you don't know. Remember, anybody who needs to come into your room will have a key. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to the idea of best practices with the adults in the room, the teachers, the staff, the administrators. If you model calm behavior, the kids stay calm. If you're amped up, the kids are amped up. It's really simple. They look to the adults in the room for guidance and for behavior of what they're supposed to do. So that's why, you know, it's really important to stay calm. Now, if you've ever taught policing or an intro to criminal justice class, you know that once you get into the policing sections, there's 80,000 iterations of what if. Well, what if I was doing this? Would I get caught? What if I was doing that? Is that illegal? And I constantly have to tell my students, like, I'm not a lawyer. I just pretend to play one on television. Um, But kids also will think about these things. And so um, we always, like I said, in debrief, we give them an opportunity to ask us questions. And I had this one school. It was a K to eight or pre-K to eight school. So it's a combined elementary and middle. And um, they had the kids write down the questions. And then the principal emailed me this long list of questions. And I went through and answered every single one of them. But this list of questions really showed what they're thinking about. So like they thought about stuff like, well, can we have a ladder because we're on the second floor and we need to get out of the building? And we're like, well, no, because you don't want to make noise and call attention to your room. You know, we want you to stay in your safe space. Don't try and get out of the building unless you have no way to secure. Um, They would think about, you know, well, what if the shooter gets into the air vent and climbs and drops it into a dock? And we're like, okay, well, that's, they don't have time to do that. Um, But these are the things that they're thinking about. You know, they understand it's a reality and a possibility. And I think a lot of it is more intellectual curiosity of the what if. You know, they think about situations I wouldn't think about because I know that they're unlikely to happen. But that doesn't mean that their concerns or their questions aren't valid. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I was thinking back to when I was in high school and... and (laughs) thinking about um did we did we do anything even remotely like this and i think so i went to the largest public school in michigan 
my graduating class was probably about 1,200 people, um, probably 5,000 students on campus. It was actually two high schools on, on one campus. Now it's three on the same campus. Um, so I think we did have one day we were, I think my freshman year in 1994, there might have been a bomb threat or something like that where we were shut in. And it was, but then like, it's not that the students didn't take it seriously. It was just weird. It was just like, this is not, this isn't a fire drill or a tornado drill. Like why, why can't we leave our classroom? Like what's going on? Um, which is interesting because if it was a bomb drill and they didn't evacuate the building, that's like a whole other. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what. It, I'm not. I honestly don't remember, but I, I do remember the day. Um, I don't know if we were ever even told what was going on. Um, but like, approach it the way that you would you would expect like affluent middle class white kids to do, right? Like the teacher said, we can't do this thing, so now we obviously have to do this thing. <laughs> and like, what's going on? Um, but yeah, I mean, um, so the other thing I was thinking about, so, I mean, I have two questions that I want to ask you and they're, they're kind of disparate. So, I, um, the first is like, I, I wonder how people in our situation, I wonder if our reactions to this, as we imagine, like the flight, our, our possible fight or flight or freeze responses, I wonder if it has to something a little bit to do with how we imagine our relationship to the students. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I have, for better or worse, a very paternal relationship, I guess, with a lot of my students. And so, and there have been instances in the past where there's been like a crash out in the hallway or, or whatever. Um, or like, especially in classrooms where we can't see out into the hallway where I've been like, hold on. And like, we pause for a minute and then I'll be the one to look out, you know? Um, but if I didn't, if I just viewed this as a job, um, or, was like like a professor like we know there are lots of professors who have very contentious uh, uh or toxic attitudes about undergraduate students who who may just be like you're on your own you know what i mean and like i'm not trying to be facetious about it but that's just like the reality of how faculty um view undergrads um the other thing I wanted to, to ask so like you've alluded a couple of times to the hollywood <laughs> style of doing drills and and so I've heard of I've heard about these right lockdown drills that are essentially, um, how can I say this in a way that won't get me in trouble? Realistic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, so I've heard of ones maybe at some campuses that are basically, and and so this is more from like the university level, basically are just public safety's excuse to play paintball <laughs> on campus. And so I'm curious about like how how does that happen? Like why does that happen? Um so to be perfectly honest, um usually the emphasis on drills is more at the K to twelve level. Mm-hmm. Um because I think despite instances like Virginia Tech and NIU and most recently uh UNC and Charlotte, people don't really think about it being at a college campus and you know one of the one of the things that i constantly am up against in this line of work is it could never happen here like so we don't need to worry about it um and i to me in my opinion that is perhaps the most dangerous phrase in related to this because when you say that it means you're complacent mm-hmm. and you know and i think 
to go back to your first question, I'm very, very similar. Um, I had an incident within my first couple of years of being a professor where I had a student who I legitimately thought was a threat um, based on his, his actions and his, he had a flat out behavioral change in front of me when he was talking to the point of where it was like somebody had gone a screen over his face and his eyes blacked out and he got very robotic. And I'm sitting here thinking like, this is the end. This is how I go down. And um, I actually had a student there. My TA was with me and I grabbed her and shoved her behind me Mm -hmm. because I was like, if this kid pulls a gun, which is honestly what I thought was going to happen in the moment, um, then I'm going to go first Mm -hmm. kind of thing. That was, interestingly enough, that was pre-Parkland. I think now, you know, given the fact that I come from not one, but two communities that have had mass shootings, um, for me, it's very different because I personally struggle with a lot of guilt. Um, And that might not seem rational to any listeners, but even though, like, I logically know that I couldn't have stopped what happened at Parkland, I've still dedicated my life to try and save other people's lives. And the fact that this happened in my own community, even though I, you know, however many states and however many miles away, it doesn't assuage that guilt. And so for me, you know, it's like I would throw myself in front of a gun for my students because I want them to go home to their families because I've watched what happens when people don't go home to their families over and over again in a much more intimate way than most of society get does. Like mm-hmm. I don't turn off the TV. I don't get to turn off the TV. Um, I've been home a number of times. I've seen my communities be devastated um, in a way that is unexplainable to anybody that is not from a community where this has happened. Um, you know, everything structurally, with the exception of a fence that's around the building, because they can't. Unfortunately, I mean, I, I don't want to say unfortunately because that's kind of cold. Our perpetrator didn't die in the shooting. Um, He actually escaped the building and was captured several hours later. And because he was taken in alive, he now faces a trial, which every U.S. citizen has afforded that right. But because of that, um, the building where the shooting happened is actually still a crime scene Mm -hmm. that will be made available when the trial actually happens for... um, for jurors to be able to go through um, and see. And so consequently, the building is still there with a fence around it, and the rest of the school still looks very much intact. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was home, actually, on the two-month anniversary, I took a picture of this banner that really stood out to me. It's an MSD strong. And I didn't even realize, because I was so, like, glossed out at that point, that the... um, the building behind that banner was the building where the shooting happened. And so, um, you know, for me, it's just, it's very, very different um, in that respect. I think that there's an element of it could never happen here. And like I said, for me, it's such a dangerous phrase because it breeds complacency. And this is something I have butt my head up against the wall in trying to make relationships with additional school districts and in my own campus community, um, you know, I'm very fortunate. They've taken my research seriously. They've changed the protocols to the protocol I, treat, I train on. But I've been here seven years now. Well, I'm in my seventh year. We've never had a drill. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't certainly don't want to scare everybody. But I also, it's very much like driving in the sense that, like, I know I'm a good driver. You know, I know how to drive defensively, but that doesn't stop me from worrying about all of the other drivers on the road 
and where they're there driving safely. So if, God forbid, there was ever an emergency on campus, I know that I know how to respond, but I don't have that same level of trust in everyone around me, and that makes it a more dangerous situation for me. Mm-hmm. So and and for the students I'm trying to protect. So there's there's that element as well. Um, I think some I, there's definitely no guidance at the collegiate level of what this should look like. I think that there's also even just my research that I've seen in differences of how um, how schools run drills when there's like elementary kids in the building versus when there's high school kids in the building. It's night and day. Um, even in the buildings where you have like pre-K to eight. So even though the middle schoolers are technically more self-sufficient, they're still, they're still much more hands-on because you've got the pre-Ks to the fives in there. Mm-hmm. Whereas in high schools, it's like, okay, the teachers are going to lock the door and turn off the lights, but I'm not going to put you in a cabinet. I'm not going to get you out of the way physically. Like if you can't shut your mouth, you're going to get shot. I, lit- I mean, I work with inner city kids. So mm-hmm. that's literally the conversations I've heard have, um, had. And so I think, especially at the collegiate level. Now you're, you're dealing with a bunch of theoretical adults. And I think that there's, I think that everybody looks as personal safety as being just that personal investment. And the reality is, is that safety in a workplace, safety in a school, safety anywhere is not an individual responsibility. It's a collective responsibility. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's kind of, I mean, honestly, it's kind of gross, right, that at the high school level, it would be like, well, if you don't shut up, then you're, that's on you, <laughs> right? That, I don't know, that, that makes me sad. Um, well, and it's interesting because, like, when I, I mean, I can remember when I was, so if you started high school in 94, then we started at the same time, and I remember, like, how invincible I thought I was at that age. Um, you know, and certainly I was, you know, the upper middle class white kid, you know, I actually went, I, so MSD was my home, Parkland was my home school, but I was in a magnet program. So I actually went to a high school in a predominantly black neighborhood that was across the street from the project because I was the wealthy white kid that uh, brought in to socioeconomically balance out the school for funding purposes. And, um, I can remember my senior year. Um, I believe it was our second, our second half, um, every single day for about two weeks, there was a bomb threat. Mm-hmm. And so literally every day, somebody would call in a threat and we would, you could time it kind of like the rain in Florida. You go, all right, three, two, one announcement. And it would come over the loudspeaker, like everybody evacuate the building. And we'd go all, all go stand outside and like talk and hang out with our friends. And to this day, I'm like, wow, I don't even think I understood the seriousness that there could be a bomb in the building, which is so ironic considering the year later, there was a 20 or there was 40 pounds of propane bombs in a cafeteria that could have leveled a school. Thankfully, they didn't go off. Um, that could have leveled a school. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, you know, great, kind of whatever. Like, didn't don't like. It didn't dawn on 16 or 17 year old me what was going on. Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting, like when I go through these drills in the high school, and again, I'm working with a demographic that's very similar to what I went to high school with. Um, and I've got these kids who are exposed to gang violence in their communities and other forms of community based violence, there's shootings in their neighborhoods and everything else. And here I come in, you know, the upper middle class white girl who's like, hey, I need you to get in a lockdown. I can't tell you how many times I've heard go F yourself. Like they think they're invincible or what could I possibly tell them that they haven't experienced far worse in their Mm -hmm. community? To them, school is their safe place. Um, And I've had conversations. I've had 
calm conversations. I've had some very heated conversations with middle school kids where I'm literally like, I need you to shut the hell up. I can hear you across the school. And if I can hear you, someone with a gun can hear you and come kill you. Mm -hmm. And they literally think it's the funniest thing because it's like, what do you know, Chip? You don't know anything. And it's like, but I do. And, you know, trying to build rapport with them, it's very, very difficult. I mean, we get there eventually. I've had kids come up to me at the end of training session and say, I'm sorry that my peers don't get it, but I understood what you were saying and I'll take care of it if this ever happens. And to think about that level of responsibility of a 17-year-old taking that all on their shoulders, but understanding the ramifications of what I'm trying to give them, it's it's just such a life-altering experience to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And like trying to cut through like all the ways that high school kids are, are just marginalized just by the fact of being a high school kid, right? Um, and not all at the same, even though they are... Uh, probably around the same age as each other, right? But not developmentally the same. And so trying to, to cut through all of the um, anger and angst and uh, hormones to try to get to get kids to understand the importance of this is, has got to be incredibly frustrating. And, you know, it's not so much frustrating. It's, you know, it's kind of, it kind of reminds me of, like, when I have college kids now who you know, for whatever reason, maybe they're not motivated. Maybe life has dealt them a hard hand. Um, they just give up on classes. And, you know, for me, I didn't take college very seriously. My first couple of years, I was like little miss high school. I got to college and, you know, it was two and a half hours from home. I got freedom. And I was like, Oh yeah, let's party. And I did not have the most illustrious collegiate career in the beginning. And fortunately was able to turn it around later in my life and turn out okay with a PhD. Um, but I think it's one of those situations where, especially because of where I came from and knowing, um, you know, what this means, wanting it more for them than they want it for themselves. Um, but also recognizing, you know, I've had, I think, again, because I've worked in this inner city school district, I've had kids come up to me and this one little boy, I didn't ever get his name, but I could tell you what school he was at and what grade he was in. Um, we did a training at this middle school. and he came up to me at the end of training. um, And honestly, you know, I listen, I don't want to blow smoke. Basically we're training them glorified situational awareness, like how to just be aware of your surroundings and know what to do in them. And this little boy came up to me and he said, so I have a question for you. He's like, you said we can use this anywhere. Right. And I said, yeah, buddy, why? He goes, well, there's people shooting in my neighborhood. How can I use this to keep my family safe? And like in that moment, I like really realized the magnitude of what I was dealing with. And I stayed after and he, his teacher let him stay after. And we talked for a good 20 minutes about, you know, what is your, what does your house look like? And where are your safe spaces in your house? And how can you talk to your family about this and stuff like that? But this kid's 12, you know, at 12 years old, I was at, you know, I was living the cushy life in the Parkland area where the worst thing that I ever had to worry about was my parents finding out that I stole money out of their wallet and rode my bike with my friend McDonald's for ice cream. Like, that's literally my childhood, um, you know, where we grew up in communities where everybody had a pool and the biggest issue you had to decide was whose pool were you going in that day? I mean, I did not, I mean, talk about first world problems. And so, you know, working with them really puts into context that what I do not only matters for the very worst day that they can encounter in school, but also the chaos that they live in on an everyday basis. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. And and so, like this, like you bring up 
all of the structural problems that that uh, K through twelve education and, and even college education has, right? That that makes these things um, so difficult. The other thing that I, I want to mention um, before we start talking about like how your stuff comes into the classroom is that you you talked on this you hit on this idea a few minutes ago, and I know you tweeted about it maybe earlier this week or last week. This idea of vicarious trauma. <laughs> and um, the ways that we as academics um, are affected by the material that we research and that we teach. And so this had, this had come up on the show before um, with Nick Hardesty, who is a historian who uh, has done research on, um, well, now he's, he, <laughs> it's a, it's very, he's a very interesting guy. Um, we got talking about vicarious trauma and the ways that, um, you know, in his experience, like researching genocide, um, started to really, really negatively affect him. And then in like my own case, right. So I, I teach multiple classes on violence and have recently been, um, in like the history of major cases and, and how those are connected to policy and also doing like a lot of work on the sociology of revolutions and, uh, doing this work, like I realized or I started to question, like, how has this, how has this affected me over the last however many years I've been doing this? Um, almost 15 years, I guess, of being back in academia. Um, and I think it's really important that we, like, as scholars, like, acknowledge that, right? That, um, for people on the outside who don't know anything about, like, criminology or criminal justice, like, it might, it must seem like the coolest thing in the world to get to study mass shootings. Right. And to, to do these lockdown drills and to, to not just be studying it as like a, like a white coat professor, but like actually being in there and implementing it. Like I could, I could see undergraduates listening to this and thinking like you have the coolest job in the world. <laughs> right. But then it also kind of sucks too, because you, like you said, you can't turn off the TV. You have visceral reactions to the, the shootings that happen in the communities that you're from. And, uh, yeah, I just think we need to acknowledge that, like, doing this work can have detrimental effects on us. Yeah, and it's interesting because it sort of creeps up on you. Um, so I've been, I've been doing this since 2008. And, um, you know, over the last 12 years now, more than 12 years, I've seen probably more than anybody should see. Um, you know, and, and I'm not just talking about like what you can Google. Um, I've sat through numerous police debriefs with crime scene photos that have never been seen by, um, by the public, um, or, you know, like outside of trials and things like that. Um, I've read, you know, after action report, after action, after action report, you know, and so forth. Um, and like one thing like really stands out to me is, um, the first time I was ever inside Columbine. Um, was back in the summer of 2017. So it was pre-Parkland, um, post, post, after Pulse, which is the other, I, I went to college in Orlando, so that's the other community. Um, Pulse did not, it impacted me, but not in the same way as Parkland. And I think that's because my family has connections to two of the, um, the people that were, the families that were impacted in Parkland, one whose child was killed and the other whose child was um, shot multiple times, but fortunately survived. And um, so I can remember, you know, being in this building and you come in the side entrance and I had been to Denver before. So I had driven by there and gone to the memorial, you know, not like a 
gawker or, you know, engaging in hyperstophilia or anything like that. Just, hey, this is like the holy ground of my research area. You know, like this is, I won't use that example. It'd be bad. Um, but, and I, so you come in the side building, like you park basically in what effectively amounts to the student parking lot. And you come in this side entrance and um, this, there's this like sort of hallway area before the cafeteria is like to the far left. And the auditorium is to the far right. And then there's these stairs that go up up to the next level. Um, and most people have seen those stairs, whether or not they realize it. Because if you've ever seen the cafeteria um, surveillance footage, it's the stairs that Dave Sanders ran up when he went to go alert the people on the second floor what was going on after he'd gone down and let the kids in the cafeteria know what was going on. And so you come in this um, hallway and they were like checking us in for this meeting that we were all there for. And they're like, we'll just go over there and, like, you know, sit down and we'll call you when we're ready to go in the auditorium. And at that point, like, nothing had really registered. Like, I knew I was at Columbine, but it hadn't really registered. And I sat down in, in, in what was the cafeteria, or, well, it still is the cafeteria. And I wasn't even paying attention to where I sat down. And all of a sudden, I had this oh crap moment. And I looked to my left, and I'm literally sitting next to this column, which is the same column where the 20 pound propane tank bomb had been placed. And I kind of like, you know, did the look up and look down kind of thing. And I was like, oh, okay. And that sort of started it. And then later that day, um, they, this was a several-day symposium that was held in the school. And we we actually got debriefs from Jeffco SWAT um, and the lead uh, the lead SWAT guy who was the first in the building, uh, AJ D'Andrea, who was amazing. Um, and he took us through the school the way that he had gone through it. Um, but what was particularly interesting is on that first day, they were, cause it was summer, they were cleaning the building. And so you couldn't use the bathrooms on the first floor. You had to go up to the second floor or the main level, um, up in the front, which is where the principal's office is. And so to kind of like, like walk you through this in a way that wouldn't be meaningful to the listeners, you basically have to come up the same stairwell that Dave Sanders came up when he came out of the cafeteria. And then once you're up on the, main, the second level or the main level, you hang a left. And so as you're going down this hallway, um, your science wing and everything is to the right. And as you're going down the hallway, the le- that's where the library used to be. Um, they demolished the library after the shooting because that's where most of the people were killed. And you come down this hallway and then you basically get to this T-junction. And at this T is this long hallway that basically dissects the school. On one side is the new library the gym, all of this other stuff. And on the right-hand side is the classrooms. But if anybody's ever seen the Hitmen for Hire video that the shooters made where they basically act out what they're going to do, this is the hallway they came walking up. This is also the hallway that when they made entry into the building that they entered in through. And so as soon as my foot hit that threshold, again, I've been, I've seen enough that I basically literally can piece to, I could walk through the shooting in this building as if I was there on that day. And so as my foot hit that threshold to go to the bathroom, I was just trying to go to the bathroom. I literally looked left, fully expecting to see two kids in trench coats with shotguns ready to blow me away. And I just couldn't, even though they weren't there and I knew they weren't there, I couldn't even make it past that threshold. And so I like literally ran back downstairs and it wasn't until the group did the tour later and we somehow made it over to the bathroom that I actually could go. Um, but so that was really sort of the first, you know, kind of inkling that I had that something was wrong, but it was after Parkland um, when I basically blacked out for seven months of my life. For the most part, I don't remember it. And um, 
we had to write the Columbine book that we published in about a month and a half. And I started having really, really bad nightmares. Um, So I would be writing 14 to 16 hours a day. And then for the few hours that I would sleep, I was basically in Columbine every day. And I'd get shot. I'd wake up checking myself for bullet holes. It felt like there was blood pouring out of my body. I'm like, what is going on? And I, I honestly thought all of this was totally normal. And then it wasn't until um, the weekend after we turned the book into the manuscript to the publisher, I was down in New York City, um, which is about three and a half hours from where I live with some friends from high school. And we were out to dinner in Chelsea and um, we were sitting in an outdoor cafe and an SUV happened to drive by and it hit a water bottle and the water bottle popped, which after what I had just experienced for the last two months sounded like gunshots. And so I started screaming, get down, get down, they're shooting. I have no idea who they are. I'm just pulling people under tables and everything else. And everyone's like, what the hell is going on? And my friend Brian, who had been in New York City when 9-11 happened, and he has PTSD from all of that, um, he kind of like leaned under the table. At this point, I'm like, I'll bring through the table. And he looked at me and he goes, do you have PTSD? And I go, What? And he goes, do you have PTSD? He goes, because how you're acting is how I act when I hear an ambulance. And I looked at him and I was like, huh? Like, it just, it all started registering at that moment. And that, I came back and I, I got into, I was already in trauma therapy, but not to the level that I am now. And having to, you know, getting a diagnosis of PTSD and having to work through all of that. And, you know, still, I mean, I have more good days than bad, but I still get triggered every now and again. Um, nothing prepared me for this. And, you know, we don't talk about this in grad school. We don't talk about this after grad school. We really don't talk about it a lot. And, you know, the thing that I posted on Twitter was I saw something that said that secondary trauma, this vicarious trauma that we experience is really an occupational hazard. And as such, our employers and our institutions should be providing us resources. If they want us to do the work, they've got to give us the tools to be able to do that. And I think that I thought that that was so interesting. It really resonated with me. Um, you know, and that's why I put it out because mental health in academia is something that is really not talked about a lot at all. You know, we're all struggling right now in a pandemic. Um, you know, we're all expected to be there for our students, but who's being there for us? And, you know, I've had those conversations with my friends who are also professors, like, what does this look like for us when we're trying to hold it together by a thread, but we're being expected to, you know, be the tie that binds for so many other people. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's a conversation that needs to be had. Yeah. So like, I like guess this interesting thing about like the connection between like, uh, what draws us to the, to the stuff that we're interested in. Right. And like, I think a lot of us end up in the subject areas that we do maybe because of past experiences. Right. But then, uh, what happens to us having to like, like we get caught in a feedback loop. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a need to put a spotlight on it. You know, it's it's interesting to me because one of the things, you know, I spend a lot of time in communities that have been impacted by mass shootings. Um, most of that time is out in the Denver area. So you've got uh, Columbine, you have Aurora, you have STEM school, you have, I mean, Colorado has been like a lightning rod for public mass shootings. It's very weird. Um, but it's interesting because... For me, I've been very fortunate in the sense that because I've made so many connections, I've found a place among survivors, among people who understand how I'm feeling and think I'm slightly less crazy than the rest of the world. Who's like, why are you like completely manic right now? Like, Mm -hmm. this does not make any sense whatsoever. 
Um, but it's really interesting. So one of the people that has been most instrumental in my journey has been Frank DeAngelis, who was Columbine's principal on the day of the shooting um, and, and many years after, I think 14 years after the shooting. And it's always interesting to me because Frank will be the first person to say, he says it almost every time I see him, I love him to death. Um, he always says to me, he goes, Jackie, you know, I just don't know how you do it. He goes, you see and live this every day. And I'm sitting here and I've always been this way, always so incredulous. It's like, Frank, your student shot guns at you. And he goes, he'll always be the one to go, but yeah, but that was one day. He said, you live it every day. And, um, but he was very instrumental in me realizing I needed to go to trauma therapy in the first place. And, you know, and I think about all of the people who don't have a Frank DeAngelis, you know, who don't have somebody that has this, you know, intimate knowledge of what they're going through and how they experience it. He's not the only, the only person. He's just been the most influential. Um, You know, I think about all the people that don't have him and don't really know how to navigate this. And, you know, we had, it was interesting. I had met him three months before Pulse happened. And after Pulse happened, I, like I spent about three days in the corner of my room crying um, and trying to like wrap my head around, you know, again, the first community that I came from, you know, has now had at the time was the most deadly mass shooting. 49 people had just been murdered in my community. Um, I had friends who had friends in the club. You know, this is a place that I'd never been inside of Pulse, but I had driven past so many times. I ate at the Einstein bagels where they were treating, triaging people. I've been to ORMC where they were taking casualties. Like, I mean, this, this was home and for my entire, pretty much my entire adult life. And so I spent about three days in the corner mirror crying and I, I started doing things that I couldn't explain. Like I would have to have every single light in my house on just to try and go to sleep. And nobody had been in my guest room for about nine months at the time. I think it had been since my mom had been up to visit and I would just go up to the door and I would like tap the doorknob like it was hot or something. Almost like you expect that you're going to tap the doorknob and like a shotgun blast or something's going to come through the door. I couldn't explain any of this. It wasn't rational or logical thinking. It was just what was going on in my head with everything sort of kind of coming to this culmination point. And I literally got a hold of him and I said, I know we just met. I said, but I don't know what's going on. And you're the only person I know that can help me. And he was phenomenal. Um, and he would, Frank has always been a, a significant advocate of therapy and of counseling and of getting those resources. Um, and at the time, again, I sort of, and this was my own, you know, ignorance. I shrugged it off to this is completely normal. And I didn't really seek it out at the time. And it wasn't until Parkland happened. And I really kind of got really bad that I was like, oh crap, there's a real serious problem. And, you know, so this had gone on for two and a half years before I got help. And I thought everything was normal. And now it's funny, like looking back on other things that have happened, I'm like, well, that was weird. I probably shouldn't have done that. Or, you know, like when I wrote my dissertation on the floor of my bathroom, because my upstairs neighbor, um, they used to fight all the time to the point of where I could hold my phone up and literally audio record it for my apartment manager. And this was right after Aurora um, that I was writing my dissertation. And all of a sudden, one day it got quiet and this stuff all manifested to where I conjured up this whole story in my head that he killed her and rigged the apartment to explode. And if the building was going down, then the safest place to be was in my bathroom, which was the interior room of the apartment, because I could just like get in the bathtub and survive. Like that was my thinking. And I literally thought all of this was normal. And, you know, in retrospect, after, you know, getting really good help, I'm like, holy crap, that's weird. <laughs> like, That's not normal to think that. 
Yeah, and like that's an extreme version of like grad school. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say brainwashes, but like this work like changes us in pretty profound ways that I, I think maybe even more so now because so many of us are isolated because of the pandemic and working from home. And like, um, I've been to my office. I went in maybe twice this semester. Um, only because I had to set up a new computer, um, was honestly the only reason I went in. Um, I think just like all of the toxic stuff and like other distressing things that happen in this career become normalized. And because, uh, we don't talk about it enough. Then everybody just starts to think like, well, it's normal that my job makes me feel miserable. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because I know it probably sounds like I talk about this very matter of factly, and I've had a lot of time to come to terms with all of this and to, you know, really reflect and think about these experiences and realize that they're not normal. Um, but on the same token, you know, there's sort of a twofold way or twofold reason that I'm willing to talk about it. The first is, that at the end of the day, I kind of wear it as a badge of honor. It sucks. It's miserable. And I hate it. Um, I hate having, you know, night terrors and feeling like I'm not safe in my own home at times, but I wear it as a badge of honor because I really believe that the work that I'm doing will help to save lives. And, you know, if I have to endure a little pain and heartache to make that happen, then that's fine in my book. Um, but I also am willing to talk about it because so many people aren't and there's so much of a stigmatization just around you know weakness or not being you know prim and proper and professional upfront and i don't think that this makes me any less professional i just think it makes me a human and if my story in any way helps anybody go well crap i'm not okay and i need to be to be able to do this then i'm always willing to have these conversations because i think that it's an honest conversation and I've had so many people share their stories with me um, for me and, and welcome me into a community that frankly, I'm, you know, it's funny. I've probably seen more than a lot. I won't say the most than a number of mass shooting survivors who have heard it, you know, through a wall or whatever. Um, but I've never been in a building, you know, I've never been in, in a place where this has happened and I've been very fortunate, you know, and, and I, and I think my, you know, I think of that, but I, I've been treated as if I have been in a building and I get that same level of support. I get that, uh, the concession of a new normal. I get all of those things by people who validate my experiences. And so if me having my experiences validated helps to validate others, then that's what I want to do because we really all are all in this together. Not to sound super cliche. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like you touched on some conversations that some of us on the board for CrimCon have been having, about sort of like reimagining what academia should look like. And I, as you're talking, I, I kind of wondered if like toxic professionalism is a thing, you know what I mean? Where like, there's this very narrow and rigid idea of what a professor is supposed to be like, um, at least in our field. Right. Um, and that's typically like white male straight, uh, conservative, um, super hyper rational kind of figure, <laughs> right? 
but then that does a lot of damage, right? Because, well, in a lot of ways, because I think the majority of us don't fit, don't check all those boxes. Um, and it's also damaging for students who don't check those boxes. And that can like, that, what am I trying to say? That delegitimizes the process. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, so I know the last time I was on your show, I was on um, with a group of people and included in that group was Benjamin Dodd Arrow from Florida State. And Ben and I always have these very interesting exchanges on social media um, because we both work in the space of guns, um, you know, but he is a white male and I am a female. And so it's very interesting that when we get into sort of these conversations or Twitter fights, if you will, with people, and it's usually me that will get into them. Um, and then he sort of steps in and they won't challenge him, mm-hmm. but they will always push back on me because for some reason it's very taboo for a female to study mass shooting, which is a male perpetrated crime. And how could, how could a female talk about firearms and all of these other things? It's very interesting to watch just how, you know, two people and, and he's, I mean, he's great. He's always the first person to be like, yeah, she's actually the expert on the topic, not me. Um, but still, it doesn't matter how much he legitimizes me. I'm still completely delegitimized. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that that also, it spills over. You know, I've had conversations because, you know, I teach courses on mass shootings, not how to do them, just about them. And, um, you know, it's always interesting. because I don't think my students really understand who I am. You know, they get, oh, she's the professor. But it's not until I, like, and I, I mean, I don't do this to boost my sales because I don't make any money on the book. I donated all my royalties, but they read the Columbine book in this class. And until they see my name on the cover of the book, they don't actually understand that I have any standing. They're mm-hmm. just like, oh, she's my professor, not, oh, she's my professor that CNN and Fox News and NBC and all of these other people are calling. They're just like, we just see her as we go. That's who she is. Mm-hmm. And so like part of, part of that fact, right, is like, it it really it's frustrating and there's so many valid perspectives that are are shut down right like on on not just violence but like all throughout the social sciences um because of this idea that well because this is a a problem that's being done by by men that only men should study it you know what i mean yeah like i would i would love to know what research there is on like queer perspectives on on mass violence for example Right, like that's that's got to be fascinating, but for whatever reason, um, it's it's not what's pushed to the to the forefront, you know, um, and maybe that's that's partially like in a tiny way my fault because I think everything that happens wrong is my fault somehow, and so maybe I should I should really do some serious work on like what sources I use in my classes, um, for next semester. Um, as all of us should, right? Well, there is the decolonize your syllabus movement that, um, you know, people should definitely look into and, you know, helping to promote the voices of scholars of color and other marginalized groups, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, but that also, you know, kind of ties back into my research is like, but also the people doing my, you know, working in this area, you know, it's a predominantly white, white perpetrated crime, not, not exclusively, but predominantly, um, white males, uh, you know, and then all of, I won't say all, I would say the majority of us who are doing it are also white. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, which then, like, makes me think of, like, what is the role of whiteness in framing the, how the research is done, and what is what is the role of whiteness in, like, the perpetration of, of this type of violence? Um, what is it about whiteness that that is causing it, if it is a causal effect or a causal factor, and I, I think that it probably is. Um, but without without scholars who are able to think critically about race, um, you're missing out on like really a really important part of the story. You know? Well, and it's interesting because the, bit, the little bit that has been done, you know, we've done some work looking at what factors that contribute to the newsworthiness of mass shooting. And what's particularly interesting is like our study um, that looked at 50 years of shootings, either 12 or 16, I think it was, it was the shootings in a post-Columbine era. Um, but we found actually that compared to white perpetrators, um, shooters from like Asian and other descent are more likely to be covered. And what was particularly interesting about that is those are also the most like among the most lethal shootings, like your Virginia Techs, your San Bernardinos, your pulses. Um, but there's also been research that's looked at kind of from a terrorism lens. And we've started working in the terror or in the ideological versus non-ideological mass shooting space um, is that if you look at shooters who are white, their whiteness is used as an excuse for their shooting, i.e., well, they're mentally ill, but then you look at shooters of color, i.e., Middle Eastern or Muslim shooters, and it's like, well, they're terrorists. And so it's interesting to kind of look at how those conversations unfold, Mm -hmm. because even in our most recent paper that came out, um, one of the things that Jeff did a fantastic job hitting on when he wrote up the discussion was about how Basically, the way in which these conversations are framed almost signifies that whites get are afforded the uh, white shooters are afforded this idea of due process, whereas perpetrators of color are guilty. And you look at something like um, uh, the shooting in Charleston back in 2015, um, where you had a white supremacist go into a historically black church. Um, and kill nine black churchgoers, get away. And the next day when he was picked up in North Carolina um, and they brought him back, they got a Burger King. Um, whereas, you know, had the Pulse shooter survived or the San Bernardino shooter survived their rampages, they would not have gotten Burger King. They would have gotten potentially waterboarded. Like, you just don't know. And even when you have, um, even when you have shooters who have are are ethnically from these groups, um, but are U.S. citizens like the Fort Hood shooter back in 2009, who was um, a, a major in the army, and he went on a rampage at Fort Hood and killed 13 people. Um, he was U.S. born, Middle Eastern descent, and he was still talked about as a terrorist, even though he was a U.S. citizen. We don't call white mass shooters domestic terrorists, which is what they are. We call them mass shooters who mm-hmm. get due process rights and are mentally ill. Yeah. And then the conversations turn to like the larger um, population who uh, live with or suffer with mental health problems and then now have to deal with the stigma of every person with depression and anxiety and um, any other sorts of um, uh, neurological uh deviancy we'll say uh are are now lumped at lumped into this potential mass shooter group um and now and that was something we saw really heavily pushed after sandy hook when it came out that the shooter had asperger's 
And if you look into any research, even like news articles cited research on Asperger's, people who have Asperger's are not violent. If they are, like, it's rarely outside of the family. And in 0% of cases, do they use a weapon? And, you know, as as academics who were trained on regression to know that there's always an error term because you're dealing with humans, to have something where you have fundamentally zero error, um, it, it's mind-blowing that people are still like, well, he had Asperger's, so all, ma- all people with Asperger's are potential mass shooters. It's like, no, correlation versus causation. Like, he had Asperger's, but he also had a very sadistic streak and a desire to murder a lot of people, and he looked up to people like the Norway shooter who did the exact same thing a year earlier. So, you know, one does not equal the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a good spot to, to wrap this up with. Um, just to kind of give people uh, maybe a, a, just a note of, of caution, I guess, when you're, when you're talking about um, the relationship between mental health and violence. Um, just be, be careful. That. Thank you so much, Jackie, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. (laughs) So if you are untenured, and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenure Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.